Hi. Good afternoon. How are we all? Okay. Not on tenter hooks, waiting for Nicola's announcements. Um, we're hoping that church isn't going to be affected, um, but we'll just keep waiting and praying. Uh, so we're back in Ephesians. Uh, like Johnny said, I'm just going to sort out my timer here because you don't want me to go too, too long, do we? Um, we're back in Ephesians. And this is a real transition moment in Ephesians. We've called this series Life to Live. And the reason we've called it Life to Live is partly because of this passage, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And in this passage, we'll see that everything that's gone before where Paul is laying out this new life that we've been given. We've been adopted by God. We're sons and daughters of God. We once were orphans, but now sons and daughters. We once were dead, but now we're alive in Christ. He's shared his inheritance with us. He's poured out his riches upon us. We are new creations. Jesus has done it. This is the new life given to us. We share in his sonship. We share in his inheritance. And so we can be glad and enjoy the glory of what it means to be saved, to be loved, to be adored by a father. But this is a transition here that where we see why we've called it life to live. Actually, Christianity is practical. Christianity isn't just an ideology. Christianity isn't just a set of beliefs Christianity is fleshed out like we see in the one who is at the very center of it all. Jesus, just in case you didn't know, he's the one at the very center of it all. It is fleshed out, it's practical, it's made real in everyday life. And so from now on, what you'll see is that we'll still see Paul talking about this life that's been given to us, but it's going to be lived out, fleshed out. It's going to be very practical. So this appeal to live a life worthy of the gospel at the beginning of this chapter is a really important moment. And actually at the heart of this really important moment, what do we see? What is one of the first things that we will see? And if you've been reading your New Testament, you will not be surprised by this. At the heart of what it means to be a believer, to follow after Jesus, is to have unity in the body of Jesus. It is to have unity in the church. There are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. Jesus, as we often point out, says they will know you by your love for one another. And as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can read it in John 17. Father, may they be one as you and I are one. So Paul's going to do two things for us in these verses. He's going to lay out the profile of a community builder. Want to be a community builder? Someone who really knows what it is to build community, to be one, be united with people. Look out for what he's about to say. And then he then shows us who the architect of that community is. And he is the one that we are to image bear, to be like. And so he lays that out uh, in the rest of the verses. But for, before I begin, Giovanni, come on up. He's going to, um, if you grab that mic, that'd be great. He's going to read the passage for us. 
So as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Is that okay? Brilliant, thank you. I went a bit early with the woolly jumper. Andy, can I throw that at you? I think that's COVID-friendly. Whoops. Okay, so the profile of a community builder. Well, the first thing that we see in verse 1 is that a community builder is devoted. Now, Paul bases his appeal to live out this new life, this life to be lived not just believed, but lived, is being made on the basis of being chained up. He makes his appeal because, you notice that? He's chained up. Now, this isn't because he wants your sympathy. He isn't like, oh, these Ephesian believers and all the believers who will read this after, oh, okay, okay, they will just feel really sorry for me, and then they'll start to live a life that looks more like Jesus because they feel sorry for me. No, no, that's not what he's doing. That would be a very odd way of convincing people to do something. Actually, what he's doing is he's showing that when he is desperate, when he's got nothing left, he still has Jesus. And in that place, he is full of joy. He is delighted in God. Church father Theodoret said of Paul, he glories in his chains more than a king in diadem. Paul finds glory, beauty, purpose, joy, fulfillment, and the power of God in his life at the end of himself. As he is desperate for God. Have you found yourself in a desperate place for God? I have a friend who right now is going through uh, some pretty horrendous times. He's just had a surgery called exenteration. Is that how you say it, Lindsay? Exenteration surgery? Sure. Exenteration surgery, which basically means everything in this area taken out. And it's because he has cancer. And honestly, before I spoke to him, when he got the news that he had to get the surgery, I thought, man, he's going to be in a bad place. I need to kind of ready myself. But he loves Jesus, and I've never spoken to him at a time when he's had as much peace as he does now. Why? Because he was at the end of himself, and he had two choices. Despair, or cry out to God. He's cried out to God, and he's at peace. He finds joy. Paul can give so much because he's received. He's cried out in desperation again and again and again and again, and he has found that Jesus is with him, that Jesus is faithful in chains, in shipwrecks, in beatings, in threats of death. He has found that Jesus 
is faithful. He's good. He's with us. He's for us. In your desperate places, you discover that more than when we're not. We all must ask ourselves, are we desperate for God above all other things? Are we truly willing to go there? Is Jesus worth it to you that you would lose everything else and still be able to delight in him? Paul is saying, believe this gospel, follow after me and live as I live, that even in chains, I am delighting in God. Verse two, a kingdom builder, a kingdom builder, I guess you are a kingdom builder, but a community builder is humble. The word humility here literally means lowliness of mind. Jesus lowliness of mind took him where? To the cross. His humility brought us honor. Paul's saying, you want to be like Jesus? Be willing to be humiliated for the sake of others. Christianity that is alive is about radically giving up our own wants and desires for the desires of God and for the desires of others. It's not about whether others deserve that honor or not. It's not tit for tat in the kingdom of God. Praise Jesus, that's not what he did for us. He didn't say, oh, Ian, I'm only going to give you what you give me. So it's only, it's got to be a two-way thing here. Come on. That's not grace. And that's not what Jesus did. In the same way that Jesus was willing to lose all of his heavenly honor in order to be crucified in my place, crucified in your place, we are called to lay ourselves down for others. Now the key to this moment, or the key to this is a moment of self-realization. And actually, sometimes the way that we communicate the gospel, this good news about Jesus, doesn't communicate this very well, I have to say. I think the way it was communicated to me, I I didn't really get this until I was a little bit older. The moment we realize that we are in a pit of filth. Yes, marks of beauty are there in every human being. Every one of us is an image bearer of God and there's still beauty that shines out of, of all people that live on this earth. But it is tainted, covered in muck, polluted. And the, the truth is, we desperately needed God. We were nothing. We need to grasp that. John Stott says this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see that it is something done by us. We deserved that. We caused that. Our sin. It was us. But Jesus, rich in love, overwhelmed with compassion and mercy for you, was willing to walk up that hill 
and take that pain and suffering that you and I deserved. We need that moment of humiliation, that moment where we realize that should have been us. That's what I deserve. As chapter two said, we lived by our own selfish cravings, deserving of wrath, it says, the anger of God. But God, rich in love, made us alive, raised us up to the heavenly realms, Paul says. He adopted us. He made us holy. He did it all so that we had no reason to boast but could delight in him and be satisfied in him alone. If we get that, we truly understand in our hearts what it means to be humble to lay ourselves down. But we forget that, don't we? Listen, I forget that. There are days where I, I forget that. How? I don't know, but I do. And we start going on with our own lives and we go back to expecting to receive like we give. Now, if you find yourself saying something like, yeah, I'm showing, I'm showing, if I was to say to Lindsay, Lindsay, I'm showing you grace. Come on, show me grace then we don't get it. If Jesus acted that way towards us, we would have totally missed the point. We have to, if that's what we think that Jesus has done for us, we've totally missed the point. Jesus, we couldn't give him anything. And yet he still loved us. He still went to the cross. We need to cry out to God like the psalmist does, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Like, keep going back to your salvation. Keep going back to the point at which you can realize, be, realize that humiliation that Christ went through that we deserved. And then maybe we can do that for one another. Guys, it's not easy. But that's the calling. To live for self contradicts life given in the gospel. True glory like Paul finds in chains and the Ephesians believers aspire to, even though uh, he is in chains and they have suffered. That is the kind of humility that we need towards one another. The profile of a community builder is gospel humility. Verse two, again, gentle. You see that? Gentle. Jesus was the greatest leader to ever live. And he said this, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Do not confuse kindness and gentleness, patience for weakness. Jesus trumps any cultural hero that you can ever think of for strength of character. He led, not with a forcefulness, but a gentleness. And the world is still listening. If you try and build community out of a kind of dutiful, religious uh, way of doing things. Okay, I need to do this because that's the right thing to do. I'm going to do that. And we do that out of dutiful obedience to heavy-handed leaders, we end up as a community of fakes, surface-level relationships. It's like building with a pack of cards. 
It's all going to come toppling down. Paul Tripp, uh, pastor, author of Dangerous Calling and a new book called Lead says this, our definition of a leader now is strong personality, quick-witted, forceful, domineering, able to win the day in a discussion or argument, can cast vision and collect people. He says, no wonder we've produced a culture of bullies who mistreat people. Goes on to say, we need to stop backing away from a biblical definition, uh, sorry, yeah, we need to stop backing away from a biblical definition of a leader. Humble, gentle, kind, faithful, loving servant. Genuine community builders are not the strongest personalities in the room or the loudest voices. They don't walk over people. They're humble, they're gentle, and they're Christ-like. Trust in God, not in self. And those of us who lead must constantly remind ourselves of that. It's not about raising your voice a little louder. It's not about trying to wrestle control. It's about being gentle like Christ was gentle. Still in verse 2, patient. Community builders are patient. God has been patient with us. And if we want to build a strong community... A genuine, spirit-filled community. We've got to be patient with each other. We need willingness to have long suffering towards difficult people. And again, it's back to that humiliation, isn't it? That, that moment of humility. We realize who we truly are. If we do that, we are likely to be able to be long-suffering towards one another. People who are difficult are me. People who are difficult are you. Just careful about who I looked at there. <laughs> we need willingness to continually love one another because we realize that we're just, we're just as bad. During COVID, I've noticed that even in our church, which I would say is doing well through this season, actually we've had a little less patience for each other. There's been a little bit more grumbling in the background. A little bit more talk about one another. Now it's, that, in some ways, that's natural. It's a difficult time. But let's be quick to be slow. You know what I mean by that? Be quick to be slow. Let's not be the people who are quickly bad-mouthing one another. Let's be people who are quick to be slow about our judgments of one another patient with each other. Community builders are patient with one another. Verse 3, I think that I've chosen the word tenacious here. I think that's what Paul's driving at. Community builders put in the effort. Now we'll see in a minute that unity is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, okay? And you can't take that away. It cannot be destroyed. Yet, Paul calls, calls us to eagerly maintain this unity, so at one and the same time, we are gifted unity. We are one, okay? We are one. But at the same time, we are to eagerly maintain. So in other words, that takes a lot of effort. Come on, come and do this. Come and be a part of this. Work hard at this. And it's like any other family, isn't it? 
there are loads of families who are really close to one another. Praise God. There are also loads of families who are estranged from one another. Are they, are they still families? Have you had one family that's really close and you had one family that's totally estranged from, from one another? Are they still families? Yes, by definition, they're still families. Even if they live miles apart and don't talk to one another. They're still families. But the family who is close with one another have probably worked pretty hard on their relationships. Probably spent more time together. Probably been willing to forgive one another. Go the extra mile for each other. If we as a church family want to be close, we've got to make that extra effort for unity. Hebrews 10, 25, it starts with this. Do not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. Sometimes you miss that bit off the end because we just want people to attend. No, 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 it's much more than just attending. You've got to come and encourage one another. might feel really different to the next person. Maybe you feel like you don't quite fit in. Maybe that you're not part of the kind of larger demographics within the church. You think, oh man, I'm just not like them and, and I feel left out. Can I plead with you? Would you be a proactive community builder? Would you be someone who really is willing to still love, to still come and make that extra effort? Do you invite people around even though it feels uncomfortable? Would you meet them for a coffee? Would you hang around at the end, even though the, that's the last thing you want to do, you just want to bolt out the door now? I know we're not supposed to hang around at the end, but it's a nice day. You know, steps at the front, all that sort of stuff. A community builder continues to go. They go to Grace Communities and get stuck in, even when they can't be bothered. They get along to church, even when it's a beautiful sunny day and the trossics are calling. They are committed. When someone upsets them, they aren't waiting in hope of an apology or hold resentment, but they love anyway. Grace is not to let go and let God. It is to step into what God has given us. We have a participatory role. Want to be a community builder? Be tenacious in our pursuit of unity together. If we're going to keep building a strong community, a community that gets stronger and stronger, a family that gets closer and closer, we've got to be devoted, we've got to be humble, we've got to be gentle, we've got to be patient, we've got to be tenacious. So that is what a, the profile of a community builder looks like. But what about the architect of community? Who is this and what does he look like? Verse 4, we have one body and one spirit. Paul uses this analogy, body for the church, a lot, doesn't he? And we unapologetically speak about it a lot. We are all a part of the body, each one of us with a role to play. Every single one of us. And actually this links to verse 7 and Johnny's going to be dealing with this next week. And the many gifts um, that we have as a church and there are some specific ones named that he's going to be explaining. But guys, can I just make a plea to you? I know that these are strange times. I know that this is bizarre, that you're all spread out. I know that this feels like it's much less participatory than normal, that you don't get to take part in things so much. Can I make a plea? Can we all do whatever we most possibly can to keep 
contributing as the church. You are the church. Church is not an event. You are the church. And we must do all we can to keep being the church together. We're not spectators. And there are some things that we're going to try and do in the coming weeks that we hope will really make a big difference to how we can participate. One, we're going to start today, which is to invite people to bring contributions. Okay, so what will happen is during the time when Lewis is going to be leading on the guitar, I'll be at the back. And if you have a word, something to contribute, something to bring, a a word to share, uh, something from Scripture, come grab me and we'll have less time than we normally did to do it. So come quickly, please, (laughs) if you have something. And we'll hopefully get you out the front and you can share something with us to encourage us and to build us up. Now, some of you might feel insignificant in terms of your gifting. You might feel like the pinky toe. But the truth is, the pinky toe is vital. Apparently, it's something to do with triangulation and your balance. I don't know. But the pinky toe is vital. You are vital. Every single one of us is vital. Part of gospel grace, you are totally vital. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 22, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, that is one part of what, what Paul is saying, but I actually think the main thrust of what he's saying about the spirit here is that God unites us, the Holy Spirit. He is like the ligaments, the tendons, the muscles, and the cartilage of the body. He is the one that unites each part of the body together. God is the glue in our relationships. Made one by him, the Holy Spirit. That is what we are, one. Remember, as we saw in verse three, we also have a responsibility to keep actively stepping out to maintain unity by the power of the Spirit. Spirit forms unity and maintains it through our faith and effort. Okay, one hope. And the body, God's people, the church, are united by the one Spirit in the one hope they have received, which is that Jesus has created a new humanity, one that will be joined together in the last days when Jesus returns and he unites the heavens and the earth and he makes this glorious new creation. Guys, that is our hope. And we have one hope together in what Jesus has come to do. One that is harmonious, one that's united, one that's not broken, one that is devoid of all the fractious relationships we see in the world. Paul is referring back to the calling of God in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that all things in heaven and earth will be united in Jesus. A new creation, a new society, one that is being made ready in the body of the church to rise up to enjoy all the glories of that new creation that was meant to be. To live together forever in perfect harmony. Want to enjoy life as it was meant to be forever? Believe this hope. Have your moment of self-realization and be raised up with Christ. God is community's architect, giving us hope.
Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Do you guys remember when we baptized all those people last year on the, on the same night on Bass Street? What a night. If you were there, it was an extraordinary night. And you will know why these three are being brought together if you were there. Because we saw that when a new believer is baptized, they declare faith in Jesus as their Lord. Baptized. Faith. Lord. By faith we are saved. Faith in Jesus as our Lord. So a believer puts their faith in Jesus as their Lord through the physical declaration, public declaration of baptism. When Peter asked at Pentecost after this great demonstration, he was asked this by um, some people who wanted to come to faith. They wanted to believe in Jesus. They wanted this power that was on display at Pentecost. He'd seen this amazing, miraculous moment when the Holy Spirit falls and on uh, the people there in Jerusalem. And many people come and they ask them this, what must I do to be saved? What does Peter say? Repent. And be baptized. Galatians 3, 27 through 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we are baptized, our old life is buried, says in Romans. We go down into the grave. Oh, you better spit there. It must have been quite excited. Down into the grave, and then we are raised up to new life. Just making it realistic like baptism for you there. New life with Christ. But here's what Galatians is saying. That verse I just read out, and here's what Paul is saying here. That when you're baptized, you're not just raised with Christ, you're raised with one another. So I think we see things like baptism as individual proclamations. We're, we're saying that Jesus is Lord and I've put my faith in him. And so I'm saying it to the world, me personally. But you're not only doing that. That's a wonderful thing. But you're also doing it with everybody else who believes in Jesus. Who knows Jesus. There's a unity even to something like that. So hey, who wants to get baptized? Who here, you don't need to put your hands up right now. Who here has put their faith in Jesus, but they've not gone down into the water to declare that their old life died with Christ and that they've been raised up to a new life with him? I know there are one or two interested at the moment. Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do that soon? Go up to Loch Lomond or do it wherever we can and just declare Jesus as Lord. We can build united communities because we have one faith to serve one Lord as we declared at one baptism. Jesus, our Lord, is community's architect. Verse 6, this is the last moment for us this afternoon. One God and Father over all. We've had one Spirit and one Lord, and now to complete our perfect community of our triune God here is God our Father. Our Father is the one who we love together through the Spirit and have intimacy with. Think of the dad at the park. Two or three kids hanging off him, 
kids are delighted to be with them. You can, you know, one's off this leg, one's off this leg, one's over the shoulder. That's what we should be like with our father together. So delighted in him. Right at the beginning of the whole story, God says, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, our image, and, and in our likeness. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is our perfect community architect. And we are to reflect him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to image bear him. We are not just random matter. We are modeled, designed to reflect our maker. And one of the major implications of being made in God's image is that we will not find our greatest happiness, our greatest fulfillment without bearing God's image in relationship to one another. You see that? We are to do this together. We're made for it. Our world wants to Sell us the lie that we're just individuals consuming. No, no, we're made for each other. We're made to bear the image of God together, not just in marriage, not just in those kinds of relationships, but in all our relationships, particularly in the church, which is this new society, this new humanity that has been formed through Jesus, but and joined together, united by the Holy Spirit to the praise of the Father. Paul is reminding those believers that by being joined to Christ, we're adopted into sonships and we're able to cry, Abba, Father, with groans of the Spirit in us, like temples, like the temples that we are. We should be very concerned about imaging God in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To be image bearers then is to face life with others beginning with the church. Charles Hodge says this on Ephesians 4. Let me finish with this. The whole passage is about the relationship of God to the church. God as Father is over all its members, through them all and in them all. The church is a dwelling place for God through the Spirit to be filled with God, to be pervaded by his presence and controlled by him, is to attain the summit of all created excellence, blessedness and glory. The heart of living life, living this life out that we've been given, is to do it together, is to do it in unity, to be the family of God. I am so thankful for the commitment that we have as a young church to the family of God. That I feel really connected with so many of you already. And just think, years of this together. Going together for the glory of God in the good of Glasgow. We are community builders for the community's architect. That's what we're made to do. Devoted, humble, gentle, patient, tenacious. There is one body, one spirit, and one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one God and Father over all. I'd like to invite you to stand, if you can.
Lewis is going to come on up. And I'd like us, as the body of the church, to wait on God together. So do, do what you need to do. But together, let's wait on him. And actually, why don't we do this? I'm saying do what you need to do. Why don't we do this? As a symbol of our togetherness, our unity, why don't we all, if we can, just hold both hands. I can't because my mic, sorry. Um, but hold both hands out like this just to help us to be in a posture of receiving from God. And as Lewis starts to play, let's just open our hearts and our minds, our souls to God. Come, Holy Spirit, we wait on you now. God speaks to you during this time, you get a sense, ah, I just feel the church needs to hear this. I'm going to be standing at the back, just come and grab me, say excuse me to the person you have to get past, I'm sure they'll be alright, moving out of the way so that you can bring what God is asking you to bring to build us up. Come Holy Spirit, we wait on you. song that Lewis is about to bring um, is very similar to what Andy brought for us last week and so um, I'm just going to read from another passage that, that um, tells us a story, this great story of pouring out worship it's Matthew 26 verse 7 starting on verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done 
will also be told in memory of her. Lord, help us to be extravagant worshipers, people who are desperate for you, willing to pour out our perfumes, our riches, willing to pour out our lives at the feet of your throne. Jesus, our Lord.